Hi, everyone, and welcome to our Coffee Talk version of Potida Podcast. It's bright and early on a Saturday morning. I'm your host, Jessica. And I'm your host, Clara. Thanks for joining us. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Reed Bartlemy, who is a freelance fashion and costume designer who lives and works in New York City. Prior to designing, he spent many years dancing for companies throughout North America, including Pacific Northwest Ballet, Ballet Met Columbus, Alberta Ballet, Shen Wei, and Lara Lubrovich. He has designed costumes for many dance luminaries, including Pam Tanowitz, Jack Ferver, Michelle Boulay, Trey McIntyre, Kyle Abraham, Christopher Wielden, and Matthew Neenan. As part of his design ventures, Reed Bartlemy and Harriet Jung founded Reed and Harriet Design in the fall of 2011. Collaboratively, they've designed costumes for Justin Peck, Marcelo Gomez, Kyle Abraham, Pacific Northwest Ballet, Miami City Ballet, New York City Ballet, and have produced clothes for commission works at Fall for Dance, the Youth America Grand Prix, and Dancers Responding to AIDS. Along with Justin Peck, they were recently featured in the documentary Ballet 422, which premiered at the 2014 Tribeca Film Festival. And with that, we would like to introduce you to Reed. Welcome, Reed. Hi. Hi. Thanks for coming on. I'm excited. We're excited to have you here at 10 a.m. on a Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. I'm good at waking up. <laughs> oh, well, that makes one of us. That's cool. <laughs> so uh, to start off with, we'll ask you the question we ask everyone. Um, tell us about your early training in dance. And actually, you started training in dance um, seriously at a later age than most mm-hmm. people. Um, so maybe tell us how your artistic career started out. Okay. I'll just start at the beginning. Please do, please. So I was born in New York City. I grew up in Soho. Real New Yorker. Real. Yes, another one. (laughs) Um, I went to public school in the village at PS41, but I left after fourth grade because I'd been uh, like a, a music kid in New York. So I auditioned for the American Boy Choir School when I was, I think, eight. And when I was nine, going into grade five, I started there. So grades five through eight, I went to boarding school in Princeton at this boy choir school. And uh, we did a lot of traveling and recording and concertizing all over the place. And that was really wonderful. I had like the most incredible time there. So when I was 13 and I felt, you know, at the peak of my fame, (laughs) then I went to interlock in arts academy to study music and i had like a very different musical experience there because suddenly it wasn't a it wasn't about being part of a group it was about a kind of personal a personal process of developing as a musician and that was a tricky adjustment for me interesting was it based on pushing you towards a solo career right but in my second semester at school I took a class called General Dance, which is um, something you can take in place of a PE credit because at Interlochen, (laughs) you just need one semester of PE, and there are no sports or anything like that. But it was everybody. It was like musicians and actors and visual artists and writers, and um, I loved it. Like, it was my favorite Mm. part of the day. It was only 45 minutes, and some days it was like very beginner ballet, Mm. and other days it was either a structured modern dance class or like a composition kind of class, which was always really fun. Mm -hmm. I took that class for two years, even though you only had to take it for a semester. So I started taking it middle of my freshman year and I took it through to the middle of my junior year. And uh, in the middle of my junior year, I think I was feeling, I was having doubts about a career in music. I wasn't necessarily very excited about like a career as Um, a singer. So all of a sudden I was uh, like 16 years old and was kind of like, I don't, I don't necessarily know that I have like the kind of temperament to, to do this, to like Mm. really be self-motivated in a practice room. And, and I, I was really into general dance and I loved going to the dance shows in Interlock and it had been my kind of first exposure to, to dance in that way. And like this Western concert dance setting. So cool. So I asked the dance dance program uh, teachers and director if I could uh, take real dance classes with the dance majors. Mm. And um, they 
they said yes. Oh. I mean, I'm a boy, yeah. which is helpful. You can get a later start, I think. Oh, you can get that? away with a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and oh, that's so cool. I was sort of like naturally gifted. Not necessarily like I was super coordinated or mm-hmm. I just had like uh, very open joints ah. and, and kind of traditional proportions for ballet. So I feel like this is all over the place how dance studios judge students from you know age three mm-hmm. like whenever they come in or whenever they start I, f- I feel like it really is 100 percent based on flexibility as it should be if you're looking for people who could be professional right or could have the right facility to do the movement right like is do you think that that's what it is what it comes down to well i think we're specifically talking about ballet when we yes. talk about mm-hmm. when we talk about this kind of specificity in in physique mm-hmm. um and i think like any sport there are bodies that are kind of predisposed to it Mm -hmm. like you'll find when you get to high levels of swimming or basketball or track you'll find there's like similarities in everybody's bodies yeah so you know traditionally the ballet body has very kind of like open hip sockets Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and kind of round ankles and flexibility through the back flexibility through the shoulders flex i mean mm-hmm. yeah it's a lot about about having extra mobility through all your joints which was something That's a good way that to was put very it. natural for me and for our listeners who aren't 100 percent bunheads uh the open joints or the open hip joints is mostly for turnout which is where you right. turn your toes out to to the side right. give it a try at home but don't hurt yourself like the human <laughs> pelvis kind of like wraps around the top of the femur bone. Oh my gosh, you know anatomy and everything. I don't. Oh. I'm terrible at this stuff. <laughs> but you know, um, it's um, it's just always interesting to me the way studios that are really serious about dance and producing professionals, they look for that from the beginning, yeah. which they probably do in any like in swimming, they might look for the right yeah. predisposition. I think it's safer for a body that's predisposed to it to do yeah. it because like ballet, mm-hmm. for a body that nest doesn't want to do it, it becomes very yes. unsafe. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's unsafe for everybody, really. But. Yeah, I mean, a lot <laughs> it's of not natural. open-jointed yeah. people end up with the thing where, it, you know, they go too, like, like they don't have the support because they're right. just kind of, yeah. but yeah. whatever. And when you are hypermobile or hyper-flexible, whatever they call it, um, you can work on the strength to reel that in. So mm-hmm. yeah. that's much easier than trying to make yourself more flexible. Yeah. That's true. And yeah. I mean, it's not just the bones. You also have to have, like, the right kind of ligaments, et cetera. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, for whatever reason, could just like jump into the splits when I was a little kid. So, Sweet. Um, <laughs> but um, natural facility aside, I think it's really impressive that you moved on to a professional career so quickly yeah. with a lot of really renowned ballet companies, such mm-hmm. as Ballet Met Columbus, which is where I'm from, yeah. um, as well as Pacific Northwest Ballet. But tell me, what was it like training to get to that professional level? And did you ever feel that you were catching up to dancers similar to you at your age? Yeah. Well, when I joined the dance program at Interlochen, I I was a double major at that point in voice and dance, which is sort of unusual there. And it means that your workload is even more. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I had a lot of musical experience and so it was very natural for me going through that kind of curriculum. But the dance thing was suddenly very challenging. I mm-hmm. was now basically a beginner. Mm. And what was being asked of me was stuff I was really uh, not necessarily comfortable with. And I spent a lot of time regretting the decision I'd made. Mm. But it had been, you know, it taken a lot of kind of work to, to, to make that choice. And mm-hmm. I'd come up against a lot of questioning from my counselor at school and mm. and I thought I really have to prove myself now yeah. now that I'm here and I'm feeling doubtful about it I just want to keep going so yeah so when you say that you were asked to do things that were uncomfortable going back to the physical aspect of it I mean I think most injuries happen when you have someone who has that facility and flexibility but not the strength and they have mm-hmm. to build it up do you feel like your teachers recognize that you being a beginner and having that potential pitfall 
helped you to build the strength? Did they give you extra mm. time and well push you in that direction? It wasn't so much about like flexibility or strength for me at that point. It was mm-hmm. totally like coordination. Oh yeah. I didn't. Yeah. They would like teach a petite allegro, and I'd be like, I don't, I knew one of those steps, you know. So wow. all of a sudden, I was in a group of people who were very well versed at all this stuff, and I was. It was like learning a new language. I was pretty self-possessed at that age so I <laughs> I spent a lot of time in the library at Interlochen just pouring over all the dance magazines and any videos I could get my hand wow. on and I became very obsessed with like the history of like dance in America of basically the history the catalog of uh, dance videos as it was at that point because at that point mm-hmm. there was no Pre- internet YouTube. so this is weird but I suddenly had an encyclopedic knowledge of like American dance history like I knew who all the dancers were and all the companies and awesome I took that with me like as I went through my career so I just kind of like knew who people were oh that's amazing Mm. probably more so than a lot of dance students at that age because if I remember a lot of dance students just weren't that well versed in dance history right Right. here I mean well (laughs) the focus for most dance students is just like I gotta get better I gotta you know I gotta like get to this thing but I didn't necessarily have goals in that way at that point I was just still kind of like what what is this like what exactly am Uh I doing and how can I figure out how to enjoy it more because I really enjoyed it before it became serious Mm -hmm. I was having a lot of fun and then all of a sudden I was like oh my god this is hard so I graduated from Interlochen and I had applied almost exclusively to music conservatories but a woman from SUNY Purchase came and set a dance at Interlochen, and her name was Betty Jane Sills, and mm-hmm. I think she still teaches there. Yeah. And she was very encouraging of me, and she pulled me aside and was like, you should apply to School of American Ballet for the summer. And at that point, I was like, that's, what's happening? <laughs> the summer before that, I had gone to Milwaukee Ballet School, and that had been my first summer program. And then I went into my senior year of high school, and I was still feeling very discouraged in, in, mm. in dance class. But um, Betty Jane made me feel like maybe I had something to offer. So I've, I found that really encouraging. So the one dance school I applied to was SUNY Purchase. Mm-hmm. And I got in and decided to give it a try. And I, I made sure to find a voice teacher in New York to work with in case. I wanted mm-hmm. to keep my options open. So that fall, I started SUNY Purchase and had a, I was immediately happy with my choice. I was mm-hmm. having a lot of fun. I really liked the students and the faculty. And um, Had you gotten the hang of this petite allegro, if you will, I, by then? I, yeah, I guess at that point, like, I was starting to put the pieces together a little bit. Must have clicked. And um, the ballet faculty there were pretty encouraging of me because, mm-hmm. you know, at SUNY Purchase, it's really like a broad student body, and there are some... There are a few students whose focus is ballet and many students whose focus is modern dance. So the ballet mm-hmm. faculty immediately like puts their claws into those students <laughs> who seem to have like an interest in ballet or mm-hmm. some kind of potential. Absolutely. So after a year of purchase, I, I auditioned for School of American Ballet and I auditioned for Pacific Northwest Ballet School. Mm-hmm. And I was accepted into both programs, but Pacific Northwest Ballet offered me kind of everything. So I'd heard about Pacific Northwest Ballet from friends who'd gone there and I thought that seems like a better fit for me and I'm I'm excited to like go out to Seattle and mm-hmm. so I went to P&B that summer and I think I was immediately struck by the fact that I I still had a lot of catching up to do. I was kind of a little older than most of the other students but mm-hmm. there were 16 year olds who were better than me and there was like a 13-year-old who was better than me. And I was like, oh my God. And that's Aaron, mm-hmm. Aaron Scott, who's now soloist at ABT. But I also realized that there was a there was kind of a reason I was there because there was this very strange kind of cohesion to the student body and especially to the company at that time. Hmm. Ken Stoll and Francia Russell were the directors of the company and they had created this place for very tall dancers for dancers with very flexible feet and for a lot of blonde dancers. Oh, so you're the perfect fit. I mean, I'm not very blonde, but it was, it was odd. Mm -hmm. So I thought this seems 
seems I feel like I belong here. <laughs> Do you so, mean that people were more, there was more of an attitude of we're in it together and help each other out and people were kind of nicer and less competitive? No, it was just even? like, the, the, it was like ethnic cleansing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was a little bit of variety, Mm -hmm. but anyone who went there would be struck by how this company was sort of being modeled after the queen of the company at the time, who was Patricia Barker. Fascinating. And it's interesting. I think people in the dance world always thought P&B was going for a specific look, but you've totally confirmed it. (laughs) It's a true story. Like, when I got there, I remember thinking, which one is Patricia Barker? (laughs) And I remember looking over this group of, like, females and being like, it could be that one, or that one, or that one, or that one. I mean, Pacific Northwest Ballet, at that point, was already very established and had become kind of a safe haven for tall dancers who didn't get into New York City Ballet. I mean, it's a very good company. They had a lot of exceptional dancers. So I didn't stay on for the year after the summer. I went went back to SUNY Purchase. And shortly after starting my sophomore year at SUNY Purchase, I, I started to feel like I'd like to, I'd like to just focus on ballet. What do you think motivated that? Hmm. I think it was not, it was not only that I had a kind of physical sense for ballet. It was also that I had a lot of outside confirmation mm, mm-hmm. that was that was encouraging mm-hmm. me to to pursue ballet. So I called up Pacific Northwest Ballet and I asked if I could join the professional division, which are their it's the highest level of the school and it's a group of mm. this kind of curated group of dancers that also performs with the company it's like a second company in yeah. mm-hmm. in the way that it it is now because now so many companies have second companies but at the time really only abt had studio company and they remembered me and invited me to come in january so i joined the professional division in january and i found myself in a group of dancers that i really liked i made very close lifelong friends in that mm-hmm. group of of pds because at that time it was people like Laurel Keene, who became one of my best friends. She was at my studio growing yeah, up. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's from MDT, right? Yeah, older than I am, but... Yeah. yeah. And Drew Jacoby was in our class at the time, who ended up... Who is still a lifelong friend and someone I've lived with at various points. So in that way, I felt very happy. Training-wise, I felt maybe a little bit in over my head. Mm. Because at that time, P&B was, was really more of a finishing school. And I was not ready to be finished. I still was like putting together a foundation. So why mm-hmm. do you think they took you? Or... Because of how I looked. Huh. Mm-hmm. I mean, ethnic cleansing. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, yeah, because I have pretty legs. <laughs> I mean, awesome. truth be told, like, thank you to mom and dad because the, the legs thing and just in general proportions have like, um, have opened doors for me that would, I'm sure not otherwise have been opened. So I'm at PMB. And kind of half a year passes, and I, I got some job offers, because what PMB does, which is great, is they bring in directors from a bunch of other ballet companies, and they, they either teach a class to the professional division or they watch class. Mm-hmm. And Pacific Northwest Ballet itself feeds from the professional division, so each year they'll take a handful of dancers, but most of us won't get in the company, so it's great that they bring these other people in to recruit. That is great. I didn't know that. And they would finance audition tours if you wanted to oh. go elsewhere to, to try another company. So that first year, I was there, I got a few different job offers, but I thought, you know, I'm going to stay on for another year. I'd like to see if I, if I can possibly get into Pacific Northwest Ballet. I stayed on for another year, and I had a kind of, like, difficult time that second year. And once the winter came, I started to realize that I was not going to be offered a job at Pacific Northwest Ballet because we'd gotten this kind of influx of men from a school of American ballet. So directors came in again, and I had, like, worse luck than the year before, which was weird. Mm-hmm. But ballet Met had offered me a job the year before, mm-hmm. and then David Nixon came back again, and this time he seemed less interested. And I think yeah. because he was offended that I hadn't taken him up on, on his offer the year before. Oh. You know, I'd, I'd followed up with him and written him a nice letter sort of turning mm-hmm. down his offer, but I think he was really excited about me that initial year because I was very raw. Because it 
ballet met, they have a very specific way of training individuals. They thought this is a perfect time for him to come when when he's not too finished. Absolutely. So I didn't go, and I think he was a little annoyed. Mm -hmm. So the next year, he kind of didn't ask to speak to me after that class. Oh. So I, I, I went up to him on my own with a teacher and was like, I'm still interested in ballet met, and I, I hope that you know you can you know repeat last year's offer. Mm-hmm. He was like, well, I'm not sure or whatever. No. But a couple <laughs> weeks later, he called, and they offered me a job, which was thank God. And uh, I feel like this was like a big turning point in my life, just physically and. Um, figuring out what company life was about. And mm-hmm. um, David Nixon at the time was director, but it was just transitioning over to Gerard Charles. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Yoko Ichino, David's wife, was still staying on as kind of director of the school and director of training. So mm-hmm. we had a lot of class with her, and that really changed my life. Absolutely. And yeah. set me up for, like, Um, a much healthier career in dance. You're making me so excited because obviously I'm from Ballet Met Columbus and Columbus, Ohio, and Yoko was a huge turning point for me and to this day has always remained my biggest mentor in the ballet world. Um, And I can see why they would be very interested in a raw talent because normally they're used to dancers who have developed bad patterns over time Mm -hmm. and they have to break them down and build them back up. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I think that's true. Because mm-hmm. when I arrived, I was sort of struck by the company. I was, I had become so accustomed to this kind of extreme body that is prevalent at Pacific Northwest Ballet. Mm-hmm. And I got to Ballet Met, and it was a really, really big variety of bodies at, at Ballet Met. And you could see in in all of their bodies from this kind of, specific training they were receiving that there was this amazing stability and this kind of incredible uh lift that they Mm, all had definitely i don't necessarily mean like jumping wise i just mean like there was a length through their bodies that was very purposeful absolutely um it wasn't like a reliance on on just like natural ability it was like there was something that was being taught there that was very clear inside all of their bodies. Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean, specifically those people who were really buying into it. I mean, the problem with a company like Ballet Met was that as much as Yoko and David wanted to have all of the dancers in the company really buy into their methods, of course there was dancers from before their time and dancers who they had hired with the hope of transforming them who didn't necessarily buy into it, but were still very accomplished Mm-hmm. and very uh, good at ballet. It's just they Absolutely. weren't doing ballet. They were resistant to doing ballet in the way that David and Yoko wanted them to. Yes. It was something that you had to really allow yourself to do because you had to start over. Absolutely. Again, the whole breaking down and building back mm-hmm. up. And that's really hard for um, any ballet, anyone who's been trained in ballet for many years to have right. to change all of their patterns. Yeah. Being at PMB, which was a very, it was definitely like a Balanchine style of training. Going to Ballet Met was kind of the antithesis of that. It mm. was it was not aesthetic at all. It was not about achieving pictures. It was about achieving a kind of whole-bodied uh, placement that allowed you to do ballet more effectively and more efficiently. Mm-hmm. So if you arrived there and you were standing with your feet 180 degrees turned out, Yoko would immediately come over to you and kind of help you to realize that you probably weren't strong enough. You probably didn't have a powerful enough foundation to accommodate that kind of shape. Mm -hmm. So it was about bringing you in and then opening you back out again. Mm -hmm. So it was it was a shock, of course, initially, because you're being asked to do these things that you're like, "Whoa, this is so ugly. Yeah, Absolutely. But, and um, she would also make sure that you were not looking in the mirror. Mm-hmm. So many mm. classes were with the curtains shut over the mirror so that you did feel the technique internally and you weren't looking for an aesthetic or a look right. in the That's mirror. That's fascinating. Were you in ProTrack, Jessica? I was. I mean, it was amazing to arrive and see the ProTrack students at Ballet Met 
because they had Yoko and were were kind of practicing her methods always. Mm-hmm. And so in them, you could really see the results. It was it was kind of culty. I mean, you would you would peep in and like on some days of the week they would be in white unitards and on other days of the week they would be in like purple leotard with black cut off short and on another like they were specific <laughs> outfits for specific days of the week and then they would all yes. spend like two yes. weeks practicing a specific hairstyle. It's so, so true. <laughs> they would all come in with like Giselle hair for a couple weeks. Yeah, because um, we had to perfect each hairstyle. Right. <laughs> really? And they I mean that <laughs> when awesome. you'd look into a, a, these classes and I mean I took these classes as well, sometimes it was it was barely like watching what you would think of was a ballet class because there's these kind of kinetic exercises that are so much more direct and straightforward and unaffected. It was just about like aligning the bones and finding the strength to like put them in the right place. Mm -hmm. It was really extraordinary. And Mm. um, everyone around the building is always doing these series of strange exercises where you slide down the wall and use these stools and Mm -hmm. um, to get your alignment in place and to fully relax the body in between each exercise so that you're not developing any hyper problems or anything like that in between exercises it was the first time i'd really encountered this idea of like this sort of efficiency in ballet where you you weren't engaging everything to achieve something you were engaging only a few correct things in order to in order to like achieve the result with maximum efficiency. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of ballet dancers, even in all in all kinds of in all places in the ballet world, find that on their own. But mm. Yoko was like very directly trying to produce that. So by that you mean you might engage just certain muscles in your legs to do the exercise right. that she's having you do with your legs. And that yeah. you don't necessarily have the port de bras and everything going on. What at the was same interesting time. was like at, when I had been at Purchase College, I had taken some Cunningham, and then whenever I was home on vacations, I would take Cunningham. Mm. And Yoko's principles were very aligned with the kind of physical principles of Cunningham because yes. the weight when you're standing does not sit over the toes of one leg. It sits yes. kind of centered. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you would watch Yoko do a tendu side from first position, her weight would not shift. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you would think, like, how is this possible? And it's and it comes from like an extraordinary uh, strength through the inner thigh, mm-hmm. and that is where like the stability of Cunningham dancers comes from a hundred percent. Like they are the most extraordinarily stable dancers. Yeah, and absolutely. it's because they don't rely on stacking the skeleton over over itself. They rely more on like building this kind of foundation of of muscular support through the inner thigh. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've mm-hmm. since mm-hmm. explored other ways, sure. but um, because I was able to take it with me through the rest of my career, I was never injured. I mean, well, good. minor things, but well, you know, good. I never had a major injury. Yeah, and that's great. For our non-dancer listeners, I think the takeaway here, we're talking about where you put your weight and everything, is that these are the kinds of things you think about all day, every day as a as a ballet dancer. It's very it's very detailed in mm-hmm. terms of um, mm-hmm. what muscles you're engaging at any time, where your weight is while you're standing, while you're doing moves, while you're turning. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is an inside glimpse into the mind of a ballet dancer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it is fascinating. Yoko's training philosophy is so different from the rest of the ballet world. So to this day, when I take a ballet class for fun in the evenings. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of times teachers will say, why are you on your heels? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just say, I'm I'm an adult student. Don't correct me. (laughs) Yes. Um, So I just do whatever I do. But it's interesting. I've still taken that training with me. And it's fascinating how different it really is from the rest of the dance world. Mm -hmm. I mean, having Mm -hmm. had a kind of like broad training background, I'm always amazed that teachers can come to their practice with such finite ideas about like what is right and what is wrong. Mm-hmm. Because there there is nothing that is the right way. I mean, there are yeah. things that work for people better than others, um, but I've seen success through all different kinds of training. 
Yeah. Definitely. I, I had, I bounced around my whole life for training and everyone was different. I definitely mm-hmm. had the teachers who emphasized weight on the heels mm-hmm. and not shifting and then the teachers who were more balancing. There's a lot out there. Right. So uh, I spent three years at Valley Met. I, I left because I felt like, I felt like if I could go somewhere where I wasn't a a young dancer or someone who's considered a young dancer, because I came into Ballet Met directly from school. Mm -hmm. So I think it was hard for them to kind of let go of the idea of me as like young or student dancer. So a friend of mine, Lee Allardyce, who had been at Ballet Met and went to the Alberta Ballet was having a great time there. Mm -hmm. And so I did one audition. I auditioned for the Alberta Ballet and I went to the Alberta Ballet. Oh, and uh, the director of that company had a lot of faith in me. And so I was three years at the Alberta Ballet and I danced a ton and really like came into my own in terms of like what I felt <clears throat> I could offer as a dancer. My last kind of year there, I, I started to have trouble with the director just in terms of like having respect for him or respect for the work that we were doing. Um, Mm -hmm. But it was offset by the fact that we got to do a bunch of balancing ballets when I was there, which is something that's very natural for Mm -hmm. me. I don't know if it's because I had like a foundation in that kind of work. So I I decided when I was at the Alberta Ballet that the only logical thing for me to do at that point was just move back to New York because I didn't want to continue being in ballet companies. I had very little interest in it. I was not interested in the politics of ballet companies. Mm. So um, I, I moved back to New York, not necessarily knowing what I was going to do. Hmm. I had gotten a job with the Suzanne Farrell Ballet, just in case, which uh-huh. is a summer job. Oh, also, I'd gotten a call from friends who danced for Shenway Dance Arts, who were like, hmm. you know, Shenway is looking for a tall, tall guy right now. So I flew to New York over a weekend and danced around for him, literally. He was just like, dance <laughs> improvise yeah oh boy <laughs> so i was like oh man pressure's on yeah, yeah. coming from the ballet world yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. um i had done a margie gillis piece when i was at the alberta ballet which is 100 percent improvised but it is mm-hmm. very structured hmm. so i'd had like this small amount of experience but like improvising for ballet dancers <laughs> is different yeah. i mean it's not the most natural <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i I'd had a lot of Cunningham experience and I'd had that little bit of like real improvisatory experience and other kinds of contemporary dance modes, but I was really physically not quite prepared for Shen Wei, but did this audition and I think he was interested in what I could potentially offer. So mm-hmm. he asked if I could come back after my season was over and work with the company on a trial basis for a couple weeks. So were you more interested in Shenwei because it's not a traditional ballet company? Like, that was of more interest to you at that moment Well, I was interested in Shenwei because I had seen his work a couple times and mm-hmm. was really... I was very impressed by it. I thought, mm-hmm. wow, this person is really doing something that's new, at least to me, and okay. making something incredibly beautiful. Okay. Um, unconventionally so. And so Great. I got to New York. I, I started this kind of trial thing with Shen Wei, which was at the Kennedy Center because they were putting together a new piece. And he immediately incorporated me into it. So it was sort of mm-hmm. like, oh, I guess I'm a part of it. So then I started learning all the repertoire and, and touring with the company. And I did that for two years. And it was hard to, mm-hmm. to make that physical adjustment. Okay, right. so it was a big adjustment. I haven't seen Shen Wei, so I'm not familiar. Um, but it was a big adjustment to be doing it. Yeah, I mean, his work is is many things, but it is incredibly physical in many, in many ways. Mm-hmm. And they explore a lot of different physical qualities, like mm. the quality of collapse and the quality of oh. air in the body and the oh. quality of momentum and the quality of rotation. So at a certain point, Shen Wei was like, you need to stop taking ballet class and figure out something else to do. He's oh, like, because wow. I think that information is hindering you. Interesting. And I was like, but I do take Cunningham quite often. He was like, it's the same. <gasps> what? Right. Not that it's exactly the same, but right, it is the his... same physical approach. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like severe extension through the body. And mm-hmm. so I, I shopped around that summer and took modern dance classes from a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. But I, someone turned me on to this woman, Barbara Mahler. And Barbara Mahler... Um, teaches what I guess is called Klein-Mahler release technique. She wouldn't call it release technique, but it is a kind of release technique. So uh, 
it's a, it was this good. This is another two hour discussion. <laughs> yeah. But essentially, the class you like you slowly bend over, and you hang out there for a long time. Whoa. And Ooh. you do very small adjustments when you're down there, like moving your weight right or left or doing gentle twists huh. um, or gentle bouncing. But you spent most of this two hour class hung over your legs. Mm. Um, and then occasionally you do other exercises like laying on the floor and figuring out how to roll over <laughs> without engaging certain muscle groups. Wow. So it's a lot about skeletal coordination. Mm-hmm. Huh. And that was the class in which I, mm, I made the most connections physically. Mm-hmm. Working with Barbara really allowed me to open up inside of Shen Wei's work. What I also found was that that amount of international touring, though it sounds exciting, was yeah. not something that, could, that I found sustainable. Mm-hmm. Fair. I would yeah. arrive sometimes at JFK Airport and feel like I wasn't quite sure where we were going because mm. we would it would be such a quick turnaround from where we had just been. Oh, right. So, and you know, you'd you'd get to some wonderful place like Rome or Barcelona and you'd be like, "Wow, I have did zero preparation for being here. Uh, I don't know what I should go see. Yeah. I don't know the language. I don't know what to eat." So, you know, it's those things are hard. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it'd be so hard as a dancer relying on your body when I travel sometimes, mm. you know, my with the just the long distances that you're covering and then the food thing what do you eat yeah. you know it can throw off your digestion and throw off totally. your physical the way you feel in your body i just feel like that'd be so hard it was Sometimes complicated it for a lot of us so mm-hmm. you'd usually have one day of rest when you'd arrive after a long flight but good you know it was grueling yeah. and mm-hmm. i started mm-hmm. to, the novelty wore off quickly i loved the people at shenway it oh, was good. the most wonderful group of dancers very supportive oh, i was totally in awe of all of their ability physically and so mm-hmm. i was excited to you know try to rise up to reach the level of these people mm-hmm. and you had mentioned before you didn't like the politics of the ballet studio world right. anymore understandable yeah. did you find less of that at shenway was it I wish I could say yes, 100%, but Mm -hmm. I certainly, you certainly inside of that kind of situation encounter mm, political things like Shen Shen Wei really makes decisions in his work that are removed from his feeling, well, basically removed from... (laughs) This is hard to explain, but it's very black and white. The human mm-hmm. element. Like exactly. he's not thinking about your feelings. He's like, yeah. well, you don't look good doing that, so move to the oh, or something that's like exactly that. <laughs> right. It wasn't about, like, your feelings at all. It was mm-hmm. just about who had the right color to be the right paint, essentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was huh. just like he was painting a picture, and one thing was right and one thing was not right, and it wasn't about you. And that was hard to adjust to. Mm-hmm. But... At a certain point, I felt like I'd accomplished what I needed to in that company, and I was inside of the work as much as anyone else. So, oh. um, I I felt like okay, I can go now. Huh? I I don't need to put myself through any more of these processes, <laughs> and uh, I'm gonna move on. And I had for a long time been aware of Lar Lubavitch's work. Mm-hmm. I had seen it when I was in college, mm. and his work kind of kept coming back into my awareness. And every time I saw it, it felt very, like, familiar, like it would be appropriate for my body. Mm-hmm. I was working for Lar Lubavitch, and um, I, I danced for him for a few years, but the whole okay. time I worked for him, I was in school at FIT. So how did you think of design and I had FIT? I had been a crafty person and made a lot okay. of Halloween costumes, and mm-hmm. I come from a design family. My mm-hmm. mom had, had designed clothes and bags and... Her whole family were are painters and artists, so I didn't know exactly why I was doing it, but I was doing this book called The Artist's Way at the time, trying uh-huh. to figure things out, yeah. and it kind of led me to applying to design schools. Okay, and uh, FIT happened to be the one I I uh, ended up at, and I was in the yeah. fashion design program there for three years, and I got a degree in women's apparel mm. with a focus in um, art specialization because I was in a program for people who. We're good at drying. <laughs> so, And it seems um, very quickly you've been embraced by the dance world for your costume design. Yeah. And you've quickly made a name for yourself. Um, 
What was that process like, just starting out as a costume designer in the dance world? Well, while I was at school, I I got some commissions from people I knew or people I danced for, like like Jack Fervor and Lara Lubavitch. And, um, you know, when I was dancing, I, I, I didn't just dance for Lar and and Shen Wei. I also danced for for Jack Fervor and Kyle Abraham and this woman, Catherine Miller and Liz Santoro and um, Douglas Dunn and Christopher Williams. So there was, I had, I had become connected into the New York dance world and very broadly so because I, Mm -hmm. I knew the ballet people. I knew kind of like, uh, more uptown modern dance people. And then I also was connected into this more performance based dance world. By the time I graduated school, I'd already I'd already laid the groundwork for this network of choreographers to work for. I didn't know yeah. I was going to do that. It just networks happened. are so important, like yeah. knowing people to approach. Um, and by the way, I feel like one strand that I've noticed running through your narrative is this kind of boldness that you don't see with other people of going up to somebody and asking. Like you said, you called PNB and said, can I be in your <laughs> second company? And then yeah. you went up to um, David Nixon and said, hey, I, I'm still interested. <laughs> I just feel like most people don't do that in their life in general. And I think it it's, I think you seem like proof that it really is important and yeah. it, it gets you places. And if I may add to your reframing of Reed's story, <laughs> um, I really appreciate how throughout your career people have seen your potential Yeah. and you put your ego aside knowing that you had some catching up to do, but you met the challenge always. They saw your potential and you said, okay, I'm going to work hard and try to reach this potential you see in me and you've had such a fascinating career oh wow <laughs> but it is impressive i mean you like seems like you've proactively pursued the opportunities and made yourself better and yeah. pushed pushed yourself forward which is i mean cool. it all feels very like natural at this point it seems like there couldn't have been another <laughs> right. way it just yeah. kind of unfolded yeah. um but yeah i i mean it's insane that out of design school i've never had another job I just work for myself designing it's sort of unheard of yeah so you know when I was in school I met Harriet and she um she got a great job right out of school which was working as a dress designer for Jill Stewart but you know it's very shortly into that kind of job that you're you realize that you're not really getting to express your own kind of creativity you're Mm -hmm. kind of working in the service and through the lens of someone else's Mm -hmm. so when I realized that the amount of work I had was enough to to accommodate a, a kind of creative collaborator, I, I kept bringing Harriet on more and more because I really trusted her and really admired her work. Yeah. And eventually she just quit her job, and now it's all we do. Oh, so cool. fabulous. Yeah. I didn't realize that. And while we're on this topic, I wonder if you've ever had a project that was a challenge. You didn't know how to make a certain uh, garment or maybe a function because for mm-hmm. ballet or for dance mm-hmm. oftentimes in its costumes there might you might have to have hidden functions in oh, there yeah. um, and what methods you use to teach yourself and I'll tell you this question is coming from we spoke to Naomi mm-hmm. Pescu uh, who's a costume designer a while back and she mentioned that at one point she had to create a costume that could be ripped off in one oh, motion oh yeah and so I she, in order mm-hmm. to do that she watched a bunch of stripper videos on oh, youtube yeah. so can you top that story <laughs> or do you have anything like well anything funny? basically every especially you know starting out like every new project posed new challenges that mm-hmm. i had no experience with because in fashion yeah. school you learn kind of traditional or commercial garment construction mm-hmm. and suddenly people are asking you to do things um that you have no idea how to do like how do you make a pair of pants out of woven fabric that you can do the splits in i don't know so mm-hmm. you make tons of mistakes i made millions of mistakes until you finally start to arrive at like conclusions of what is the right way you also i've been really lucky to work with um to work with shops attached to big companies where they're are experts oh, so i ask them questions incessantly about like oh, how do you crazy. do that and like oh. how do you how do you change a pattern in order to make it accommodate dance movement? Or mm-hmm. why does this fabric work and why does that fabric not work? And mm-hmm. so I always feel like there's so much more information that I need. I'm not sure how I'm going to get it all, but I mean, it's just slowly accumulating. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And working with costume shops is 
it's such a dream. My mom's a dress designer, and I feel oh, like that would have been her dream to oh, make well. tutus and make. <laughs> oh yeah, we've been really lucky to work at City Ballet and P and B in Miami, and mm-hmm. um, I mean, they, these people have been doing this for so long; they know exactly what to do. So great. Yeah. And so what is your design aesthetic overall, or do you have multiple aesthetics that you work with? Harriet and I have kind of, I think the reason we have had this sort of great creative synergy is that we both have a, a very kind of direct idea of, of what it is that we we like about clothing. Mm. And we we care about things being pretty simple pretty direct and kind of rooted in in history oddly i mean i'm not i'm not saying like we're interested in like period design sure but there is a kind of classicism about what we do we want Mm -hmm. it to be modern in artistically but i think you know if you look at the clothes that people wear nowadays you don't find that they've deviated so far from many years ago and that's because like the human body can accommodate fabric in a very specific way Mm -hmm. so when you try to like to really like move outside of that framework you encounter problems but you that can be very interesting Mm -hmm. and challenges that are really interesting to overcome but you're basically like defying defying the body you're defying the the object on which you're working Hmm. Mm -hmm. so I think it's really important to kind of like respect the human form but I'm reluctant to say we're minimalists Mm -hmm. um I think good maybe you know part of the work we do can seem that way but when I look at other designers who I really admire who've worked in in this field I mean there's not a lot of people who've like made a big impact on the world of design inside of dance Mm. but there's a really broad variety of people I have a lot of respect for, but I think the common thread is that the work they do is so direct that it kind of like, it can carry over the footlights to the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, it's work that is sort of bold. Mm-hmm. So you'll find in like the design, like Isaac Mizrahi's work, or even Karinska's mm-hmm. work. I mean, they're so different, yeah. but the one thing they have in common is that you kind of remember what exactly it was in a very direct way. Right. And can you give us an example of a recent collaboration or show where you approached costume designing in this way, in this direct, simple way, but what was the collaborative process Mm. like overall? We just had a piece last week at, um, I guess it's still happening, but the Kegwin Company's performing and we designed a piece for Adam Barrick. Adam kept talking to us about wanting the costumes to to kind of be reflective of what people might wear out to go dancing, just human mm, mm-hmm. human kind of interaction dancing. And um, <laughs> but with a little <laughs> nod to like what they wear in the studios. Oh. So it was like fancied up studio attire in this way. Mm-hmm. And so and he kept kind of referring to dark colors like black or purple or gray and Harriet and I just in general avoid purple. It's just I'm not sure why. Of lighting, or no, oh no you just... we just don't like it. <laughs> I mean, right. we've used it. Yeah, it has its place. But, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so we were walk. We had been watching a rehearsal of it, and we went out in the street, and Harriet suddenly said, "It should just all be nude." Mm. And I was like, "You're right. It should all just be nude." Is that so, a commentary on today's society? What people no, wear out. You know what it was? Out. It was just like this. The dance was so sexy. And, like, Harriet and I are, I would never, like, put the word sexy next to clothes that we make, but mm-hmm. there was something about the dance that was so sexy, and we walked outside, and Harriet said it should it should just all be nude to be, like, the common thread inside of mm. all these different clothes we're going to make. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I could see it right away. I was like, that's perfect. So I, we contacted Adam, and we're like, what would you think of this? And for a minute, he was pretty reluctant. He was like, oh... Well, I think he'd had his mind set on this dark palette, but I sort of encouraged him. I was like, I think it'll give your piece a real identity. Mm. And um, we did. We made, we found all nude fabrics and made all these clothes in sort of a, a, a very narrow kind of nude palette. And it it worked so well. 
I'm really happy with it. That's a great example. You can really see how that worked. Um, So tell us what it was like designing for Justin Peck and being a part of Ballet 422, which is a film. Yeah. (laughs) Justin was actually the first client I worked with Harriet for Mm -hmm. because Janie Taylor, who used to be principal of New York City Ballet, and I had had some costume work on uh, the same program, which was a program of dances by Avi Schur. And she, uh, I guess Justin was looking for a designer for a duet he was making at Youth America Grand Prix for mm. Teresa Reichlin and Robbie Fairchild. Mm. And he didn't know who to go to, so he asked Janie, and Janie was like, you should ask this guy. And so I got an email from Justin. I didn't, I knew he was making work, but I didn't, I hadn't seen it yet because he hadn't made any pieces at New York City Ballet at that time. Mm-hmm. So I was in the middle of school, like full-blown school, dancing for Lara Lubavitch, and I was like, I can't, I don't have time for this. So I went to Harry, I was like, hey, you want to collaborate on something? Sort of like work together? Yeah. And she was like, okay. <laughs> so I we put together like a fake portfolio, I guess. It was a real portfolio, but it was our work we had done, some of the costumes I had done. Um, our individual fashion work from school and sent it to Justin. He was like, great, you guys seem like you know what you're doing. So we designed this duet for him and it went really well. And we, I still am really proud of those costumes. Um, And it just sort of like opened up this conversation with, with Justin and Harriet and I. What was that duet called? It was called Furiant. Okay. Because I know you have some examples on their website. It's on, I think it's on our website. Yeah. Um, And so we, we have since, I think, designed like seven dances for Justin. Oh. But the second thing we designed for him, I think, was Paz de La Jolla. So he contacted us like very late in the fall of that year, whatever that was, 2011, I think, mm-hmm. and was like, um, Peter Martins has decided to not make a commission that he was supposed to make because he didn't get the music or something. And he asked me to make a piece. And... I have like two weeks. Whoa. Basically, like, it was like no time. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's a little more than that, but it was mm. very, very condensed. Maybe not. Yeah. So he was like, would you guys design it for me? And he sent us some very like clear visual imagery and we got to work right away and began this relationship with the New York City Ballet Costume Shop, which is now, now we've done four dances for them and we're doing a fifth this summer. But every time we'd go into work, they would mic us because they were filming things. Oh. And it, so they just like didn't really mention that. And then you well, in and they were you like, know oh. they were filming one of their like three minute promotional videos that they do oh, for okay. all the stuff they oh, do okay. there. Mm-hmm. So we were like, cool, whatever. Uh, so initially it was very stressful to have a microphone on and be doing this stuff, which you yeah. can see in the movie. Like our initial, well, I'll get into that in a minute. But <laughs> we so at a certain point, Justin was like, you know, they're gonna. Um, this after all was said and done mm-hmm. after the premiere. He's like. They're gonna make a movie out of all this footage, and I was kind of like, "What? What? Are you, like, what are you <laughs> talking about? Like, release form. <laughs> how can there be enough footage?" <laughs> so we did sign releases, and they edited together this movie. And then, as ta- as it got closer to the like premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival, dancers from New York City Ballet I'd see would be like, "Oh my God, you're funny in the movie. It's great." I'd be like, "God, I." I'm so curious. So why have I not seen it? Now I'm really nervous. Mm-hmm. So we got to the premiere and this movie like happened on the screen and I've never been so embarrassed in my oh life. My gosh. I was full body sweats, oh just like gosh. drenched. I couldn't believe I was sitting in an audience of people who were listening to me say these ridiculous things. And um, I mean, I'd wow. never been, I'd never been confronted with myself. In that sure. way, right. huge, high definition. Which is much more intimate than Ugh. a ballet context. That was crazy. <laughs> so uh, that was hard. But as time has gone on and I've mm-hmm. been to subsequent premieres and seen it on Netflix, whatever, it's okay. It may, I'm not so horrified as I once was. And I really like the movie a lot. I'm glad it exists as like a document of our beginnings. Because really for yeah. Justin and Harry and I, yeah. it's really like... We didn't know what we were doing. I mean, Justin... literally, it seems like you didn't quite know you were making this film. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) And Justin, at that point, had made Year of the Rabbit, which is, like, one of his masterpieces, but Mm -hmm. it was all still very new for us, and you can see that. We're, like, asking kind of, like, dodo brain questions and... um, Well, probably to the wider audience, it sounds 
very intelligent. I don't know. I think to the wider audience, they're like, this is boring. But... <laughs> That's the problem. That's, That's the problem, the with, problem dance. with dance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll snazz up this podcast yeah, someday. <laughs> Get some dance moms on here. Oh, Ooh, yeah. I would love that. <laughs> I think I've listened to a bunch of your episodes, and I know you guys talk oh, a lot good. about, like, how insular dances or like yeah. its availability to, you know broadly but mm-hmm. i think like in all art forms there are like wide audiences for certain parts of that art form that's and small true. audiences for certain others and i don't that's know that that's gonna, right. gonna change like yeah. there's gonna be like a big audience for pop music and there's gonna be a smaller audience for classical music mm-hmm. and inside of the classical music world there's gonna be a big audience for opera and a small audience for more kind of new things you're and absolutely it's the same in right. dance yeah there are so many cross sections in the dance world and that's something that we're yeah. very aware of even mm-hmm. when we're curating who we bring in as guests um, but generally speaking we like to make dance as approachable as possible and hope that we can add to that mission statement and if we hopefully could do one more question yeah so that does relate to a question we had um, which is based on an interview we heard of with you a couple years ago, uh, in which you said that the ballet and modern worlds tend to be disconnected and lack understanding of one another, which Mm -hmm. I think we all acknowledge in this Mm -hmm. room. Uh, What are some things that you wish modern would understand about the ballet world and vice versa, like specific things you think they should Mm -hmm. acknowledge about each other? Um, And do you think there are ways that communication and understanding could be established or improved? I think in the past couple years, there's been this kind of effort to create more awareness. Mm. Um, Claudia LaRocco developed this thing at Dance Space last year, which was this platform where she paired together people from the Balanchine lineage, the Cunningham lineage, and the Judson lineage to to make work together. Mm. And I hope like the effects of those series of shows will, will carry on. And I know that in, in some ways it has, like right now Jody Melnick is working with dancers from the New York City Ballet on a mm. new piece. And I think the conversation in New York is available. I don't think a lot of people are accessing it Mm. because um, things are unfamiliar. Mm. I think the more dance you see, the more open you are to, to kind of developing this dialogue, which relates to all different parts of the dance world. Sure. Um, I think it's hard when, when you're comfortable with something like if I'm a ballet goer, I think, you know, this is interesting. At the Kegwin premiere, there was a lot of, like, ballet board members and people who support the ballet. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. This concert is basically as, like, modern dance as these people are prepared to be right now. Mm-hmm. And that work is very commercial mm-hmm. in comparison to, like, what yeah. is available inside of the modern dance world. Definitely. Do you think getting people involved dancers, choreographers involved in new projects could almost push them into that interest. Like if you uh, approach a ballet choreographer mm-hmm. about doing a dance film and maybe mm-hmm. the d- idea for the dance film is not strict- strictly ballet, but for them that's so exciting to do something new or yeah. take on a new... Like, Do you think that there are kind of creative ways to pull people or I make do. it incentivized? Absolutely. I think that, you know, right now the climate of dance in New York is very much like the climate of politics in in the United States. There's a huge uh, discrepancy of fund distribution. Millions and millions of dollars go to the ballet, and tens and tens of dollars go yeah. to other people. Mm. So great analogy. <laughs> it is. It is. It is pretty shocking. I think that one way to change this is to is for the ballet world to kind of open its doors to people and makers from not just makers who are doing contemporary work Mm -hmm, makers who are doing totally different kinds of work and seeing what that means for their company for the ballet for the moving ballet body etc i mean i think there's a lot of value in in continuing to develop ballet inside of itself i love the work that justin does like Mm -hmm. i think working inside of a neoclassical vocabulary is great something that i love seeing Mm -hmm. i love to go it feels great to watch i don't think that the ballet world is making the kind of efforts it potentially could to open up a conversation between um really innovative dance makers and and more 
uh, established classically driven organizations. Definitely. But I think slowly it's happening. The Martha Graham Dance Company is commissioning new works from other choreographers. Larry Kagwin is doing the same. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, there's glimmers of this kind of, of connectivity uh, happening. Yeah, and it's interesting because ballet's roots are in collaboration. So you would mm-hmm. think that the ballet world would embrace this much more collaborating with all kinds of different artists. And it will be interesting to see how that grows over time. Totally. Yeah. I mean, in in the early 20th century, there was this sort of culture of like choreographers, composers, visual artists, all being kind of on equal standing. It was like they would yeah. come together in the Ballet Russe. If you look at programs, it's like the artists, the mm-hmm. composers, the choreographers. Mm-hmm. It's all one in the same. It's these people coming together to like make something new. Which I think is what Troy Schumacher is trying to do with Ballet Collective. Mm, interesting. Yeah, yeah, he is. He um, even says he's helping to bring it back to its roots. Oh, yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I mean, that is that was kind of like the the roots of what Cunningham was doing. He was mm-hmm. making dance, but he was leaving the rest to other really interesting artists that he admired mm-hmm. and then just bringing it all together. And mm-hmm. he was doing it in its rawest form. So it really was like you were... it. It wasn't as much of a conversation mm, before it actually went on stage. Yeah. And okay. then when it went on stage, it produced a kind of effect that was sort of left to chance in this small way. Like definitely, because he was yeah. also collaborating on an intellectual level. Yeah. Which is... I mean, he... Props to Cunningham. He really changed it all. Yeah. Thank you, Merce. Well, and I think <laughs> in this environment, it'll be hard. Like, there will be a good ways to collaborate that are interesting to watch and bring in a new audience and all these things. And then other ways of putting together artists that might just in the current climate be met with cynicism because I think there's a perception of like this hipster, like, oh, well, I'm going to take this art and this art and this art and throw it all together and it's going right. to be more art. There's a way of doing that that I think we see a lot and isn't always done well. And it could be done well, but if it's presented in a certain way, people might assume that it's more of that amateurish mashing together of things and saying that it's like making you smarter and more artistic right yeah. i don't know if that made sense but <laughs> I think it did. everything changes I think it did. and <laughs> yeah it's a hard i mean there's so much to talk about and it's complicated uh, so because much. we all have different experiences but yeah um yeah i'm i'm into a lot of it and i i have friends in all different parts of the dance world and i'm always encouraging people to branch out I mean, I also have specific tastes. There are, like, there are things I don't want to go see. Exactly. That's a huge barrier. Yeah. Yeah. But I should. It's important to just, like, support. Definitely. And I think, you know, in terms of branching out, if we look at ourselves individually as learning and progressing and our Mm -hmm. views changing, I've been seeing dance performances for years, and I'm still discovering particular aesthetics that I like that Mm -hmm. I like from the modern dance world from the ballet world and I think Mm -hmm. as long as we can create this culture of openness Mm -hmm. to not judging right away and also just being comfortable with your preferences changing over time yeah absolutely yeah my I have changed so much in terms of like what I like and don't like and that just comes from exposure from seeing a lot of things over time because a lot of things now that I love if I had seen it 10 years ago I would have been utterly bored yeah interesting That's so true. I mean I think the biggest real barrier to opening oneself up more and seeing more is taste you know mm-hmm. it is hard for a lot of ballet trained people to like walk into any downtown modern show or like performance art thing or yeah. whatever and appreciate it so figuring out what the responsibility is is important because you're not necessarily obligated it's not necessarily a blanket well you should be going and seeing all this stuff that's new if you're not going to like it you know don't waste your time but but it is important to be open yeah to be open and to try and find new things that you do like um and jessica i think is the queen of that i really do i think you're so good at just exploring things and being open to it and And don't you feel jessica like you are more tolerant or more interested oh definitely so so much like if i had seen terry terry's show that I saw the other day, like 10 years ago, I would have, I think I would have found value in it, but I would not have been like as amazed. Absolutely. As I, was. I totally agree. And that's such a great example because he does bring different aesthetics that over time I have come to appreciate. Like his dancers have a particular authenticity. Mm-hmm. They're not 
overperforming. Mm-hmm. And a few years ago, that concept was nowhere in my mind. But now, mm. I really appreciate when I say or when I see things like this. Right. Yeah, and I think you do have to um, be somewhat willing to give up your, some of your time to things you're not going to like. And that is actually that is something that anyone would need to embrace if they're yeah, I mean, going to open themselves up. Only more. if you really have like an invested kind of interest in being like a dance person. Yeah. I mean, see what you like if you're not going to like put a lot of effort into this. But yeah, either way. Right. Yeah. Like go out there and some of it you'll like over time and some of it you won't. And But if you're going to work in the field and you're going to like participate in this culture, you need to educate yourself so importantly that's that's true so there is there is a greater burden of responsibility if you're in the world i think that's actually fair i think we can say that thank you (laughs) you've changed my thinking a little bit in that minute but i think that you're right yeah Yeah. it's your profession it's your life like Mm -hmm. yeah get involved these are your people these are all your people (laughs) hey tagline these are your people yeah well it's been such a pleasure having you read thanks this you guys is... maybe we'll do a part two sometime yeah there's so much so to fun. talk about we could <laughs> yeah i feel like we could just go on about like dance theory or whatever yeah. you want to call it i mean Let's do i it. have more to say about the design part i'm sorry we didn't leave too much time for that yeah we should have a should part, part two. two we're open to that great i'm ready <laughs> awesome <laughs> well thank you reed and thank that you to our fun. listeners bye yeah. everyone bye